Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 151. I'm really excited for today's guest, not just because he's a brilliant guy, but also because it's a throwback to my graduate school days at the University of Connecticut. He was actually a PhD student while I was a master's student. I uh, learned a lot from him then, and in this show today, we're actually going to learn a lot from him now as well. What's really cool is he has gone from the research realm, uh, actually has a lot of published studies, and was a you know an investigator that looked into a ton of really important contexts that you know favorably impacted the body of knowledge. And now he's really a practicing, you know, strength and conditioning coach, a person in the sports science world who's, who works directly with athletes on a daily basis in the mixed martial arts community for the UFC. So doing some really cool stuff and um, really enjoyed kind of his, not just his thought process with respect to how he interacts with athletes, but how he scales those interactions over a number of different coaches on different continents. So really cool material and I hope you can enjoy it as well. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Today's guest has served as Vice President of Performance at the UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas since 2017. Previously, he served as Director of Performance Sciences at the University of Notre Dame. Before Notre Dame, he spent nine years total over two stints as the senior strength and conditioning coach for the English Institute of Sport and two years as head of strength and conditioning for Newcastle United Football Club. He gained his PhD in exercise physiology from the University of Connecticut and authored or co-authored over 50 peer-reviewed scientific manuscripts. He served on the editorial board for the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research and the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. 
He's a fully accredited strength conditioning coach with the UK SCA, the ASCA, and the NSCA, and he holds a USA weightlifting certification. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Duncan French. Duncan, thanks so much for doing this. It has been way too long. All good, Eric. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. And we're, uh, we're getting the Yukon band back together and, right. and I got to start with a story. So your, your resume itself, like speaks for everything. Right. And that's, you know, above all else, the reason you're on here, but what people don't know. So I was one of three grad students accepted at the university of Connecticut in the summer of 2003. And what I never knew about grad school was that master's students and PhD students got lumped together in classes. It makes sense. It's just scale, right? You're not going to run a class for three people. But one of my first classes was with Dr. Van Heest and it was, um, it was exercise endocrinology. And I'll never forget, she did a, she did a two and a half hour lecture on, um, it was hormone receptor interaction. And I had no idea what the hell she was talking about. <laughs> I was completely lost. And it, you know, we were looking around the room and I mean, the PhD students in that class have done some awesome things. A lot of them are academia, you know, Barry's working at New Balance. And I just remember at the end of the class, I don't even know if you remember saying this, you, you pulled me aside and you're like, yeah, I missed a lot of that too. And it was super helpful for me because um, she was brilliant. And uh, I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm a fish out of water. So I, I appreciate those kind words in a moment when I really needed them. It's all good. My, my story is a little bit different because I always, uh, people say, you know, your, your name comes up in passing and, um, you know, they say, oh, Eric, Eric Cressy and he's doing great things. Like that. I was like, oh, Eric Cressy, that guy. He was my little spotty master student assistant for all of my uh, data collection. Yep. I was running around we training train study subjects. And as I recall, we had a really underwhelming intramural basketball team too. So there you go. There we That's go. Right. All right. Good. We've, all, we've all gone on to great things. But um, hey, man, I, I your resume has already been shared. But, um, you know, I think a good place to start with, you know, like – you're front and center with a lot of really cool initiatives that that UFC is rolling out. Um, maybe maybe speak a little bit to what your role is, what it encompasses. You know, you know who you kind of supervise in your role, as well as you know what kind of athletes you're dealing with. Yeah, so I'm the vice president of performance um, for the UFC Performance Institute. Um, in a nutshell, the PI, as we call it, is the uh, high performance service arm for all the athletes on the UFC roster. So we have about 650 fighters on the UFC. Wow. Um, they're, they're all decentralized very much so around the globe. Um, about 54% of that roster are based in the U S you know, Brazilians that live in Miami or whatever it may be a big Latin com community down there. But you know, the, it's, it's truly a global kind of network. So the performance Institute provides the service support for those guys, um, and girls. Um, so we have kind of strength and conditioning, sports science, nutrition, sports medicine, psychology, sports science, kind of opportunities for the athletes to tap into those services as, as and when they, they choose to. It's very a la carte in fashion. Um, we support 54, excuse me, 43 events um, around the globe um, for event support, the guys that are on the fights on a Saturday evening. Um, and yeah, they've got, we, we've got our kind of HQ here in, in Las Vegas, um, the mothership, let's say, but we've now got, we've got a sister facility in Shanghai, China, where I've actually got a full-time academy with 27 um, athletes that we're trying to break into the UFC. And in September this year, we're going to open another academy in Mexico City as well. So territorially, the Performance Institute is starting to go more global because, again, we need the global reach of the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It can't all be done via um, via Las Vegas. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty cool trip that I'm on right now. You know, very humble to be in this position. I'm around some great people and uh, been able to recruit a great team from day one and uh yeah, we, we, we think we're, uh, we're moving the needle for the sport of mixed martial arts. 
That's very cool. And honestly, I never realized how expansive the reach was. And, and as you started to describe it, it's, it's literally the only other time I've probably talked with a, a professional in this field that it kind of appreciates what we deal with, with minor league baseball. Right. You know, right. Like you go to the NBA, you go to the NFL, you're, you're in the league in year one. Um, they're really, you know, you know, there's a minor league in the NBA to some degree. There really isn't so much in, in the NFL anymore. But, you know, in baseball, we have, you know, 90 guys at least at a Dominican Academy. There's, you know, many levels of minor league stuff. And, and you are seeing, you know, teams get more international in a lot of ways there. So um, I didn't realize the UFC had, had kind of spread their, their wings so much. That's very, very cool. What are the most, I guess, challenging parts of that? Because obviously there's a lot of scale involved, right? It's, it's not just being progressive. We know you're progressive and you're, you're a nerd like I am reading research and, you know, getting in the trenches and experimenting with things, but you know, you got to understand managing systems, you got to understand leading people. And then more importantly, how to scale it across, you know, multiple continents. Like what, what in your day to day is the hardest challenge of, of, you know, kind of accomplishing those ends? Yeah. I mean, you, 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 bring some great points right there, but I mean, listen, the cross we bear is geography, right? I mean, ultimately, we're truly working in a decentralized system um, and it's it's really challenging doing remote work and keeping continuity of care um, with an athlete that you spend, I don't know, a month with here in Las Vegas and they go back to Russia or they go back to Poland or they go back to China or whatever it may be. And it's like, how, how do we kind of continue that interaction, that interface to in, be influential and supportive um, with what we're trying to do? Um, so geography is our biggest challenge. You know, the, there's lots of layers to our operation. It's, it's pretty complex in nature. Um, and the other thing which I always talk to is like the bespoke nature of it. We, we don't have custom system, excuse me. We don't have, um, you know, prepackaged systems. Everything we do is custom and bespoke. Yeah. So, um, again, a lot of effort goes into that to, Number one, understand the needs of the athlete and then understand how we have to pivot and flex our system to accommodate and optimize. Um, and that's what we really, you know, that's what the mantra that I try and adopt with the whole team is, you know, we should be going down the rabbit hole with the individual. This is an individual sport. It's not necessarily yeah. a team sport. It's an individual sport. Um, so everyone's got different needs and requirements at different moments in time. And our system has to be able to accommodate that and optimize the experience for the athlete client at that moment in time. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of complexity to our operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's the challenge from, you know, being in a clubhouse at a, yeah. at a team or whatever, where, you know, everyone's going to report at 9 a.m. in the morning. Everyone's going to be on the field at a particular time or on the court. Everyone's got to hit the weight room at this time. Everyone's going to be in therapy at this time we don't have that liberty. So yeah. it, it's very, you know, it's, it's very diverse in terms of what we're talking about across our team at any moment in time um, and, and how we're trying to solve these performance problems with the athletes. That's fascinating to me. And, and, you know, before we maybe get to like more than nuts and bolts of, you know, more granular athlete preparation, yeah. um, I'm actually really curious about your path because we obviously spent some time together at the university of Connecticut and you were, you know, all in on research then. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, my, my grad assistantship was funded, by a study from the U S army that you were one of the lead investigators on. Right. Um, and I was one of the, the minions running around and you were, you were the one bringing the, the brain power to the operation. But I'm curious, you, after you left UConn, you, you ultimately came back to coaching. Obviously you went yeah. to, um, English Institute for sport, Newcastle, right. and um, eventually Notre Dame. And now to where you are now, what was it that drew you back to performance? You know, that realm after being in academia, was it that you always intended to use, the PhD is an avenue through to do that, or is it just something that you, you love the athlete interaction? 
Yeah, I mean, all, all of the above, but I think you nailed it with the, with the last point. I mean, ultimately, the athlete interaction, I, I try to, you know, epitomize the true definition of an applied practitioner, applied scientist. Um, you know, whilst I've done my PhD and it was, it was a great experience and I was around some great, you know, people like yourself and others, um, you know, that still very close with. You know, my, my passion was never really in, in writing and publishing manuscripts that would sit on a shelf um, and would inform others. So, you know, I, I, I'm very keen on, you know, pursuing the championship, pursuing the gold medal myself. You know, I, I want to be chasing the gold medals like the athlete does. Mm-hmm. And I, I always felt I was kind of one layer removed yeah. from that in, in a academic, pseudo-academic laboratory setting um, and not really at the coalface changing those finite decisions that affect performance on a day-to-day basis. Of course, we all draw on the body of research and the body of literature every day uh, to make ourselves, you know, be progressive and better at what we do. So I'm not downplaying the value of it, but just my motives and my values were more aligned to, all right, I want to be at the in the spit and the sawdust at the coalface, um, really applying scientific theories and approaches in a day-to-day setting where we can challenge some of these um, some of these things we've been told in, in, in the literature. So it was just more of a, a motivation to be around, you know, the applied setting rather than in a truly scientific or an academic kind of vein. Yeah. And then once you get into the performance realm, before you know it, you have 800 studies that you'd love to run every week just on questions right. you have. So you, it, it kind of feeds your curiosity at the, the wrong point in your career, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, one of the themes of, of some of the podcasts that we're doing lately, um, we actually had Lauren Landau on um, just this awesome. last week. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm a big believer in, in look outside of baseball to learn more about baseball. We've had, you know, people from the golf world, people from the tennis community, all different things that have really impacted you know, our work at, at CSP. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you look at your realm of expertise, at MMA, and you also have done basketball, you've done soccer. What are the big lessons that you think, you know, baseball athletes can work? you know, can learn from, you know, those other disciplines, whether it's MMA or, or some of the other things that you've encountered, what's, what's universal across all disciplines? Yeah, it's really interesting because I've actually been invited to speak at the NFL combine this yeah. year and I've spoke at, you know, major league baseball winter meetings and NHL summer meetings and things. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate of that. I think it's, it's imperative that we, that we learn from others um, and a hundred percent agree that like sport can be myopic at, at times mm-hmm. Um, and it's very reductionist in nature. So we, we've become more and more and more focused on the granular detail that's straight in front of us within our sport or our team unit or with the athlete that we're working with or within the, the, you know, the, the position group that we're working with, whatever it may be. You know, I know, I know in your world, you know, you're drilling down on pitching mechanics and you're drilling down on, you know, sprint to first and all this type of stuff. It, you know, it, it's, it's just, becomes more and more focused and focused and focused. Okay. And sometimes I just think, you know, pulling it back and just going down a completely different avenue can be such a refreshing approach, um, you know, to the development. And I think, um, you know, that, that's really important. I try to do that personally um, and, and, and draw from others' experiences. But, I mean, I think, you know, being around mixed martial artists, so I've had the, the pleasure of thinking, you know, of working with over 40 different professional or Olympic teams in my career um, all very diverse in nature, whether it's basketball or soccer or swimming, gymnastics, you know, rugby, whatever it is, and now mixed martial arts. You know, I think MMA is probably the most kind of challenging sport I've been around. Mm-hmm. Because so many degrees of freedom in this sport. There's so many um, 
you know, whether it's the fight styles that an athlete comes with, we've got, you know, 11 different weight classes or with different kind of determinants of success. Um, there's, there's just lots of variability in this sport by its nature. You can, you can, the law of equifinality is maximized in this sport because you can get to success through so many different ways yeah. of competing. Um, but I think what's at the, car, at, the, at the core of everything is, you know, our, our best guys, the elite guys have a commitment to drilling the fundamentals, the repetition of ensuring, you know, it's that old adage, amateurs do it till they can't get it, till they, till they get it right and pros do it till they can't get it wrong, right? That, that's truly the case. And the best guys are constantly working on, you know, skill acquisition, getting back on the mats, combating the fatigue, recovering effectively so that when they come back tomorrow, their level of skill acquisition is always maintained, whereas everybody else kind of falls off for two or three days and then they'll yeah. rebound. So, you know, the skill acquisition piece um, is suboptimal, let's say. Um, yeah. And just watching these guys drill um, and, and do that, I mean, jujitsu as a, as, a, as, a, as a style, I mean, yeah. you, can be, you think of all the different body positions and postures you can be in in jujitsu and try to – you know, be an offensive fighter or a defensive fighter out of those positions. It, like, it's just infinite. Um, so, you know, drilling all those scenarios, doing that fundamentally over and over again, rehearsing those um, is, is really impressive. And then the, just the mental fortitude, right? I, I work with warriors on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I, you know, I work with fighters and, and the true epitome of fight or flight. So, you know, the the the, the embracing of the grind, the, the dedication to you know, just getting through those dark days and those challenging days. But, you know, the me mental fortitude of, of the this population is is amazing. Uh, yeah, having worked with basketball players or soccer players, and I'm not downplaying that, but it, it's just a different mentality. It's just a different athlete. Yeah, I think the, the art of being able to flip the switch and, like, compete for a lot of athletes, it, it has to be nurtured over a really long time. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like to some degree, it's almost assumed if you're getting into something as dangerous as MMA, like one thing goes wrong, you can, you can be in a really, really bad place. So Definitely you know, some degrees, consequences. yeah, it is. That's, that's huge. But, you know, as you were describing, like just the degrees of, of freedom, like, you know, I was, I was kind of jealous in the sense that like, you know, our athletes do the same thing over mm -hmm. and over. It's a, it's a sport of pattern overload. Do you see less of your, I guess your chronic tendinopathies, these things that we tend to see with people who are just stuck in rigid patterns. Obviously you see more trauma, you see more, you know, acute injuries when, you know, guys get in funky positions that they're, you know, they're not expecting. But um, do you feel like you see less of the patellar tendinopathies, the Achilles things that you otherwise would in, in you know, your basketball, your, your soccer backgrounds because of it? Yeah. Well, what, what I would say, first of all, is like, it's kind of a double-edged sword because there's lots of training components that these guys need to consider and address, right? So mm -hmm. you can't just, wrestle you've got to yeah. wrestle against the cage you've got to wrestle on the ground you've got to do jujitsu you've got to do submissions you've got to do defensive grappling you've got to do striking you're going to be kickboxes so like all these different technical units have to go into your training week mm -hmm. um and that is a big challenge for our guys because you know it's like the decathlon where, where are you putting all the separate yeah. components and still allowing yourself the opportunity to recover and regenerate that that's one of the biggest challenges we have um, but yeah, we, we see some chronic position. I mean, obviously combat fighters yeah. usually are in the guard. So they're very internally rotated in this bladed position. Um, we see a lot of neck and upper back and, and, and scap, um, chronic patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, but then if we look at our injury surveillance stuff, a lot of the issues 
in, in training are quite traumatic related to scrambles, like wrestling scrambles. Yeah. Um, so then you're talking knees and shoulders, um, you know, people getting rolled up on in a practice or whatever it may be. Um, so we see a lot of joint issues that are very, you know, mechanistically yeah. it, like related to just the way that they're fighting and training. Yeah. It's, it's not a repetition pattern as you would see with a, with a pitcher's shoulder. And again, I don't yeah. want to talk about that. That's not my expertise, but we do see some chronic patterns um, with respect to neck and upper back and mm-hmm. um, some hip labral issues, a lot of hip and shoulder labral issues just mm-hmm. because of throwing the limbs yeah. um, and, and what that does. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of the main chronic stuff that we see. Most of the other stuff is pretty traumatic in, in, in nature. I mean, I love the idea of having to prepare people for a wide variety of stimuli, right? And, you know, yeah. baseball, we, we've seen great outcomes, just adding amplitude to guys' daily lives, right? Instead of like doing 25 minute long distance run the day after a start, like go through yeah. a mobility circuit, throw the med ball, you know, do some easy change of direction, just, just something to expose you to a different stimuli that, you know, you, a lot of people just don't get in, in the younger ages when they're, they're specializing early and all that. Are, are most of your athletes, guys that got into mixed martial arts young, were they former like football players, hockey players, people like that who converted later and <laughs> discovered, or is it kind of a mixed bag? It's a real mixed bag. And again, it's another layer to that degree of freedom, right? We've, we've got weight classes, but within the yeah. weight class, you can have a short, stocky wrestler and you can have a yeah. long, tall, skinny kickboxer. Um, you know, we've had people that have won NC2A national championships in football um, and have decided to then move into, you know, fighting and combat. We've had, you know, Olympic wrestlers. We get guys that are fighting in smoker series in, in local bars and just, you know, going through people and, 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 and you know, aggregating the win column. And then people sit and go, oh, this guy looks like he's a he's got a hard head. Let's get him in the U.S. <laughs> there isn't really a, a natural pathway, of a, a really defined pathway. What I would say is that in this day and age, more and more younger people are starting with MMA as a core foundation. So MMA gyms, right? Whereas historically, you came with a wrestling background or you came yeah. with a boxing background. You had a stylistic preference, which still does happen, but you're seeing way more generalists just training mixed martial arts from the get-go. So they're learning all of these constituent styles at the same time of development. It's not like we're going to take your striking and we're just going to, like, your striking becomes world-class and then we'll try and catch up with your jiu-jitsu and your wrestling. It's, it's kind of moving together. Um, and we see that a lot more with younger younger people coming into the sport. Right on. Now, you, you obviously have background, you know, <laughs> preparing for Olympic training cycles. Certainly, like, an MMA guys are, are prepping for, for large events over an extended period of time. So it got me thinking just a little bit about like the concept of recovery across multiple time intervals. So, you know, you have athletes that, you know, certainly like they, they spar for a little bit and they take a break and they come back, you know, something that would be analogous to, you know, even what we do in the weight room, what our pitchers deal with, with between yeah. pitches. And this is kind of a hot topic just because the, the pitch clock is being shortened in major league baseball this year. Right. And everybody's kind of curious what the, the impact it'll be was. So you have to, you know, recover between rounds, you know, during halftime in certain sports, mm-hmm. there are longer ones where it's, you know, a training session on a Monday, you got to come back Tuesday and do it again. And then there's the lengthier periods after a big competition, you know, before you begin your next training block, you know, with the short-term stuff, right. What are you seeing as like key recovery competencies for your athletes that you feel like, you know, generally bounce back well, both in the session and then maybe overnight. Are there certain things that, that you really hammer home with your athletes? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. Um, I, listen, there's there's certain time frames where you just got to be super targeted, and it might just be a mental reset. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, we have a minute between rounds. There, yeah. There's not there's not a lot that somebody can do in that that mm-hmm. space of time. Um, so really, it's about a mindset shift mm-hmm. and regrounding an athlete and making them present because usually they're either living in what's just happened in the in the round previously and why didn't I get this position or you know they might have just been through a pretty attritious war and it's like right I'm going into the next round what's going to happen right yeah. so um you know grounding them making them present our psychologists work a lot on that um you know I always talk about refuel rehydrate remove if you can so any type of removal of the byproducts of of the exercise if you can do some quick flushing type activities and there's time frame to do that between a you know between sets or whatever you know rebalance the system and then reset the mind um kind of the five hours that i talk to um some of those obviously are very small periods of time others might might take a, a bit longer but i think that they're the key things um that i always and that, that we always work to with our athletes now beyond that, then you you know you can really start to look at all right the you know regulating the power of the down state, um, mm-hmm. really starting to understand sympathetic drive and sympathetic arousal versus you know the parasympathetic relaxation state. Um, I spoke to Sarah Mednick from you know uh, Cal State Irvine a lot on this. She she's got a book on that and she's got some interesting ideas. She's a professor of psychology, um, mm-hmm. but looking at you know physiological and, and psychological regulation of the downstate, being able to really bring things back to back down, and then again that you're expediting the recovery time. Then you're giving yourself a longer runway prior to going back into either tomorrow or into you know the next uh, the next phase of training. I think what I would say is that, you know, we, we have the same issue. We have, you know, within a wrestling practice, which is, again, fight or flight, guys are going and fighting on the mats. They might do eight, you know, eight sparring rounds and then they might, you know, get two minutes rest and then they're into some kind of drilling. Like that that kind of complete flip, we've just got to get, we've got to refuel them. We've got to con- ensure that the, re- the return on the energy levels is there um, and that's just the nutrient timing conversation. Mm-hmm. Then we've got kind of just a sustained effort across time. Um, and then we've got things like, well, people have a fight and they take three weeks off, you know, what, what we're doing during that three weeks. But, you know, we need to, we need them to have some downtime, but we need them to you know, get back on the horse if they can around the parameters of injury and, and those types of things. But um, yeah, it's, it's different for every guy. And cause as I say, there's a sport of consequences. So people usually start from different levels and you've got to get them back to a, a habitual baseline that's that's something that's near and dear to me like the concept of rested versus ready i think you know major league baseball the the regular season ends you know first couple days in october and you know they they report you know in mid-february we're right about at that and you know the challenge is you see these guys who who just like don't do anything for a month you know they kind of go off the grid and it's tough because that's the the lowest hanging fruit it's like it's the chance to normalize sleep patterns nutrition patterns you know something's broken to get it fixed um, you know, you're trying to learn stuff and you just see so many guys that get surprised when December rolls around and they start moving a little bit more and, and things just aren't where they need to be. And it's, it's such a, a, a short off season, particularly if players go to the postseason and play longer. Um, you were seeing more so this year with the world baseball classic, right. um, it always seems to get squeezed. So it's like so many of these guys, you know, think they're feeling great and then they actually start moving around and they're really not at all close repaired in the off season, you know, or the season sneaks up on them. Yeah. Is, and this is a really, you know, overarching general concept. 
when guys have, you know, a, a big competition in your world, is there kind of a accepted, like, take this much time off? Cause obviously there's trauma. There's, there's more to bounce back from. It's, you know, it's a lot different than just going out and throwing 110 pitches in the last game of the season. Yeah. Do you see like a, a certain range when guys just don't do anything versus like come back and start with light stuff? Do you have guys that are back in the gym the next morning just cause they feel like they need to, and that's how they mm. recover best. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, trauma management is obviously the first thing after a fight, after competition, right? So that, that's obviously got different levels of severity um, and you've got to make sure someone's returned to play, you know, appropriate. So we've got to, we've got to remove the kind of, excuse me, the consequences of, of the trauma. But yeah, we, we ultimately then want people to have some amount of downtime. Usually they've gone through a pretty intensive eight to 10 week fight camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really getting into kind of, reading up and my thoughts around, you know, overreaching and non-functional overreaching, because I do think in this population, it, it's, it's a little bit endemic, yeah. like because it's eight weeks, this competition phase and it's get every, historically it's always been right. You get booked for a fight. Now I've got eight weeks to get everything in that eight week period to then go and compete. And I always say, you know, it shouldn't be an eight week fight camp. It should be a 52 week fight camp. We've got to start adopting this philosophy of longitudinal and annual, um, annual phasing um, and usually our guys will have anywhere between two to four fights three is is normal four is, is it starts getting a lot in a year um, so you know you can do the math in terms of the amount of weeks if they keep yeah, getting yeah. booked because this is a professional promotion the fans want to see certain people okay well we'll get you rebooked okay mm-hmm. then then you start condensing um, your general preparatory phases where you can be a bit more progressive in the development and the the acquisition of, of certain you know attributes and you then straight back into another competition phase and another competition phase now that drives certain issues because usually in our sport it's coming with a background of caloric restriction as well because people mm-hmm. uh, make weight we're a weight class sport um that has certain downstream effects on metabolism and endocrine function and, and these types of things. Um, and then just like I say, the sympathetic drive that goes into an eight-week fight camp preparing every every day for eight weeks for a fist fight, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's a certain amount of adrenal burnout that we need to have some consideration on uh, in that post-fight kind of reset, recycle phase. Um, so we, 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 we like our guys to at least take you know, a week or two weeks of just very, very minimal, minimal mm-hmm. things, but then they need to start getting back into some light work um, and, and we can then see what the next kind of target is if, we, if we're aware of it or not. And if we don't, then we can drop them into just a more general preparatory type mm-hmm. phase uh, and we can kick it up into specific work or competition work when we've got more clarity on that. We interrupt this episode with a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food source ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer today for 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. I'd encourage you to give it a shot too, especially because of this great offer and because it gives you peace of mind knowing that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y to get that special offer. You just use the word target. And I think that's a, maybe a good segue in my next question. You know, in the baseball world, like things are exponentially different, you know, compared to what they were 20 years ago. Everything right. from how players are evaluated with, with the increased focus on data and certainly how the game is played. It's much more specialized with, mm. you know, you know, relievers, you know, 
basically seeing certain guys throwing 98 mile or cutters out of the bullpen, starter pitchers not going as long, you know, just everything has changed. So I'm curious, you know, and some of the injuries have evolved as well. How has MMA evolved? Like, obviously it's a, it's a newer sport in, in yeah. maybe the, in the organizational sense, even though, you know, folks have been doing this for, for a long, long time. How has it evolved and, and, and do you see it evolving more um, in different ways, both in terms of how you evaluate athletes and also how you prepare them and what's expected of them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great point, right? And I think that's kind of why the Performance Institute was built to try and help the evolution of the sport. It's part of our mission statement to, yeah. you know, to accelerate the evolution of mixed martial arts, to, to push it to new higher levels all the time. Um, but mixed martial arts by its nature is a sport of innovation, right? People are figuring as we, and we kind of talked to Eric, like, the, the fighters are always trying new techniques and figuring out new ways. Can I, can I throw this punch from this position or in this scenario? Can I counter in this posture? If I'm on the ground, what happens if I go with this, you know, rolling this way rather than the other way? They're always innovating and playing around with it. So it, it, it's a sport of innovation which really kind of continues to advance the sport. We've seen some very apparent advances, you know, the, the use of low leg kicks now. Um, has become very mainstream in our sport, where historically it wasn't always something that was was there. So, you know, that's a very um, debilitating weapon that people now use as part of their arsenal. Um, you know, because we've got eight weapons, you know, hands, elbows, knees, feet. Um, so just looking at those things, is that, that's kind of like, you know, the three-point shot in basketball. You know, it's now lower leg kicks. So like, wow, everyone's now throwing low leg kicks because of what it can do. Um so yeah, there's there's definitely evolution. Some of those are technically orientated. Some of the conditioning obviously is just elevated. When you look at the top top guys, you know the level of conditioning is just phenomenal. Um, and we're also, like you say, a, a sport that's pretty young in nature. It's our thirtieth anniversary of the UFC this year. Um, so the sport technically was you know professionalized in 1993. Um, so data and analytics obviously runs throughout your sport, right? Because of the situational nature of baseball. Um, but certainly looking at data analysis, video analysis, and those types of things is becoming more apparent in, in fighting as well. Um, and yeah, listen, the, you know, the brain health piece is, you know, I'm, I'm a huge believer, like we, we kind of know how to make people strong, right? We kind of know how to make people fast and more explosive, but the, fr the next frontier in just, human optimization is, is the brain, right? And when we look at brain health in fighters and combat athletes and how we, you know, ensure cognition is optimized against the backdrop of being hit in the head and what that's trying, you know, what your opponent is trying to do. Um, certainly that's something we're trying to advance the narrative of and on and get more kind of awareness of. That's important stuff. You, you mentioned just kind of like the superior conditioning and obviously conditioning is kind of a, a broad term, but mm. One of the things I'm actually intrigued about is, is we talk a lot with our athletes about, you know, strength and aerobic capacity seem to stick around really, really well. Yeah. It seems to be that the power detrains the fastest. And, you know, so certainly with our you know older athletes in particular, like the, the longer they take off, the more that seems to fall off. I should yeah. have done some, some interesting studies just on athletes who have, you know, had upper extremity surgeries and it's blown my mind how quickly, you know, some of their force plate numbers have fallen off just in the time, like waiting for an elbow surgery, you know, the limited, you know, activity level, you know, in the short term, just because you can't do a lot of explosive stuff while you're, you know, you're in a brace and mm -hmm. it takes time to get that back. Do you see that trend? Does, does the conditioning stick around for your guys at a high level? Is there a certain quality that you feel like in your world, 
detrains the fast because you are you're dealing with higher standards, right? Like yeah. these guys need, need to be conditioned or they're, they're going to get beaten up. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because, you know, yeah, I've never heard anyone come out of the octagon and say, oh, man, I wasn't strong enough. But yeah. I've heard lots of people come out and say, I wasn't conditioned where I needed to be. And that's why I lost the fight. So, yeah, we, you know, bioenergetics is, is a massive piece of, of combat and mixed martial arts. Um, you know, I think as a, as a differentiator, you know, glycolytic physiology. So, you know, the ability to tolerate high lactate loads and high hydrogen ion content in the body, just acidosis. Because, again, like when you're looking at the repeat grappling efforts or wrestling efforts, if you throw in multiple combinations of strikes, that's just dry. It's all done with intent, high intensity, right? So, and unlike a pitcher, there isn't that 20, 30 second recovery. It's, it's go, 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 right? So, yeah. um, you know, I think the best guys have very, very high glycolytic capabilities um, and that detrains pretty quickly, right? So if it, it, throughout a fight camp, we can see people get to a very advanced level and then when they've competed and come back into our system, might do some diagnostics or whatever it may be, certainly that buffering capacity get, is, is lost pretty quickly uh, just because the exposure is, is, is not there. Um, it's interesting because we're doing a lot of work at the minute with NIRS, looking at peripheral oxygenation in the arms and the legs. Um, and we're seeing some really interesting things where we actually think we're looking, so like loaded sled tests or um, air bike six-second efforts, you know, explosive power efforts. Um, it's really interesting because we're using those as either alactic or glycolytic assessments but what we're seeing that we also wear, a, you know, a, a, a mask using a metabolic car, and we're seeing like the VO two um, scores are going up to, you know, like ninety five percent of a VO two max, around sixty two, you know, milliliters per kg per minute. Like so, even on these highly highly explosive yeah. efforts, there's some really unique physiology going on the aerobic side that's supporting the process. And again. Wow. Going back to going back to school, right? It's like the, yeah. these these energy systems don't sit in isolation. Yeah. We can really drive an aerobic demand even through pretty explosive stuff as well, reinforcing the recoverability need for our sport, which comes in line with that glycolytic effort as well. So that's kind of where all the bioenergetic sits as an importance for our sport. That's huge. And you know, when we were at UConn, you were involved in a lot of cool stuff, right? There were blood draws, there were muscle biopsies, um, and I'm curious, like you know, what. You hinted at just a little bit with the metabolic cart conversation, but what are some of the key physiological variables that that you guys are looking at in your higher level athletes? And you know, I, and selfishly, I'm I'm particularly curious. Is you know, are are you looking closely at blood work with your athletes? Like if you if you had a high level guy that's coming to you and you want to do a blood panel on him, what are the big things that you're digging on? On you know, that, that would be universal to all athletes. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think what I would say is that we, you know, we've We've got a, a pretty comprehensive diagnostic portfolio. Um, some of those are kind of tier one diagnostics and tier two diagnostics. So some are more fundamental in nature and some are you know more detailed or more specific to the individual. Um, we do use blood work on a pretty regular basis. Obviously, you know, as a phlebotomist and a biochemist through my, my grad studies, it's something um, that, that I've been interested in. Um, we don't do it with everybody. Um, that's largely because of the financial impact of 650 fighters. Like yeah. it's just a, a big budget to do that. Um, so what we tend to do is we will use our some of our tier one metabolic assessments mm -hmm. 
to essentially go through the checklist, all right? Is, is there anything that's out of whack here? Is there a suppressed energy level or a, a reduced RMR or something that, you know, might demonstrate, you know, physiological suppression? Mm-hmm. And if we, if we start to think, okay, well, some of these tier one tests are just not showing what we thought they would do, we'll go into a deeper dive yeah. and then I can be much more targeted with an individual where we'll go into the biochemistry and the blood work. And then we can start looking at hormonal profiles uh, particularly in the ladies, that's a big thing because of um, you know female physiology and the lack of energy availability when they're cutting um, to make weight and restricting their diet. That really disrupts female function. Um, you know, iron status is obviously a huge one. Um, we'll look at some CRP and some stress hormones, cortisol, and some immunology hormones. Uh, excuse me, immunology markers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's everything from a you know complete blood count profiles through to you know, iron status and, and, and metabolism and, and thyroid and those types of things. But, you know, it's it's a very easy way to answer the question, but we really take it on an individual basis. Yeah. And that's where you're drawing on the expertise of our team members with the, the dietitians and the sports scientists yeah. and strength coaches all putting their thoughts forth. It's like, mm-hmm. well, looking within my domain, I think it might be this. And then we can go yeah. after certain targeted assessments then. And I think sometimes you go down the rabbit hole when there's something that doesn't make sense, right? You get the, the chronically injured or fatigued athlete or something yeah. to that effect where it, it, it warrants the deeper dive for sure after you've done the initial kind of entry level yeah, stuff. And, and, you know, we, we do some stuff on food allergies as well um, mm-hmm. and, gut, and gut health, um, which, again, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, in athletes that are making weight um, yeah. and, and where diet is such a huge parameter, not just for fueling, and building, but also like about body composition to make weight and, and, and mm-hmm. what an athlete exposes their gut to. Um, we do a fair bit of assessment with, with some individuals around that space as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I spoke to Mike Potenza about this. He used to be at the LA, at, at the, at the Sharks and the NHL. And now he's with, um, oh, where did he go? Um, he's in, he's in the, uh, he's with basketball now. Oh, with um, Golden State Warriors, um, and and you know he had a really great um, portfolio of biochemistry. I just don't have the capacity to do that in that much detail with every single one of my fighters um, that comes through the Performance Institute. So it's more in a very specific, targeted approach. I love that. Um, you know, maybe building on you know some of the assessment stuff. Maybe let's talk about program design and coaching. Um, and and I, this is the hardest thing to teach. I mean, you've you've mentored a, a ton of young coaches. There's no like uh, recipe book to learn how to write certain editioning programs, but particularly with what you described, right? Yeah. A collection of crazy different movements, obviously multiple continents, multiple languages, different fighting styles, all these things. What are, what are the big rocks? You know, what, what are the things that, you know, when it comes to program design and coaching, what elements do you think are, are key considerations in just about any, you know, you know program that, that you would need to write, whether it's for your basketball guys over the years, soccer, or, or obviously MMA? Yeah, well, in, in jest, I always say there is a perfect training program, uh, but it's just different for everybody. Yeah. And I think that, that's, that's at the, the, the heart of my philosophy. Um, yeah. Whenever I do a presentation, I, I show a slide um, you know, from Malcolm Tucker that um, basically shows you know, six athletes and their, you know, their genetic potential and then the impact of training um, on that genetic potential and how close we as you know, 
support staff can get them close to filling the bucket, like filling the genetic bucket. And I think that's a, that's our job. So, you know, that's different for everybody. Everyone's got a different size bucket that they're trying to fill. So when it comes to program design, it, it cannot be a one size fits all. You, you will know you put your, you know, 25 guys on your squad through the same field based workout. It's 25 different responses to the same workout. Right. Um, so I think from the get go, I'm like, I try to promote that. I try to get us all to think, you know, yes, it's tough when you're working with teams because it's a, it's an efficiency and it's a time issue. Um, but there needs to be some consideration around how you start to in, not individualize, but how you target certain adaptations. So I'm a huge believer in adaptation led programming. So it's not necessarily about the exercises or the methodologies that you use or adopt. It's about the adaptations that are consequential to any intervention. Um, for me, you know, Big, weak things break, strong things don't. Um, so you know, be be robust and ready. Like so, there there is a there is an emphasis on you know strength for not only longevity, career, and injury prevention, or let's say minimization, because we're not preventing injuries, but you know, minimization and mitigation. Um, something you touched on earlier, movement vocabulary. I want to give somebody the biggest encyclopedia of athletic skills that I possibly can, regardless of the sport. You know, you need a, a movement vocabulary and then whatever you support, you can take, you know, chapters four, five and seven and use those for your sport. But if you if you restrict movement vocabulary and skill set, that, that's a limitation. Um, and things like, you know, midline core strength, mobility, they're, they're big rocks. Um, but I'm also a believer in, you know, you have to earn the right for your program to become more complex. Yes. So when you're looking at... Um, you know, accentuated eccentrics or chains or, um, you know, uh, flywheels or whatever it may be, all these cool tools that we have at our disposable, you know, you can't jump on those unless you've essentially earned yeah. the right to to adopt that more complex approach to, you know, the physical insult. I always say strength buys you a seat at the table. You yep. know, having that foundation, you know, and you talked about, it, you know, strong, weak things break, strong things don't. Um, you know, strength is the it's the foundation for joint stability. It's the foundation for power development. It's it really creates the the floor for just about everything. Like, do you actually see athletes at that level that that show up fundamentally weak? Um, you know, in order to be in that you know six hundred one hundred whatever athletes, is there a foundation level of strength that doesn't matter? The reason I ask this is we we've done some cool testing with Proteus with a lot of athletes and they they rolled that out across the country and yeah. it's fascinating to see how. Increased athleticism as measured by power, which obviously is a derivative of strength. Yeah. It makes a big difference from high school to college. But if you actually look at the power numbers for college and professional athletes, they're actually like, it's almost a flat line. It's like skill takes you to the next level. Yeah. Strength conditioning becomes very, I guess, supportive. It's there just to make sure that you can go in and get the skill work you need in order to develop an elite slider or to continue advancing in your mechanics to the point that you can get on an aggressive throwing program and, you know, and get more skill specific adaptations. Do you see that in MMA as well, where like there's a level of strength that gets you to that point and then additional probably doesn't take you further? Yeah, I think we see it, see it all. I mean, we've got people that, um, you know, won't touch a weight, you know, all, all their all their resistance work is coming from, um, you know, sport specific training. So if you're a stand up boxer or a stand up kickboxer, that, that you're not really taking on much load. Um, you know, the, there's this, you know, 
old school dogma around, you know, lifting weights makes you slow and all this type of stuff. We're still battling all those types of things. Then you have the opposite where, you know, we've got our collegiate wrestlers, our Olympic wrestlers, and, you know, they're pushing four and a half, five times their own body weight um, and really producing, you know, pretty significant, uh, you know, over 50 newtons per per kg of muscle, uh, kg of body weight. I have to do the conversion because I'm in, <laughs> I'm, I'm in pounds right now. But, uh, you know, that that's pretty substantial. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we do see it all. Um, and usually that's, uh, again, it's the dogma of training history yeah. in combat sports. If people have come through NC2A, you know, programs, usually they've been exposed to good strength training. Um, but if people have come through, you know, local gyms on the our local fight scene, yeah. you know, they might just not be versed with that type of, of approach. So, yeah, again, same thing. If you're, as long as you have range and end, state, end range strength for us, as with you, is is a big thing because of the submissions and the joint locks um, and the ability to tolerate end range force application. Um, we see the benefit of in- incremental, um, you know, force, you know, expression and absorption in in mitigating and reducing injury characteristics for sure, or at yeah. least the, the magnitude of a trauma. We have to almost re- reclassify what strength really is, right? It's 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 not just squatting, it's not just deadlifting, it's it's how you use it in the positions that matter. You know, particularly sure. in a sport like that, where you, there are a lot of positions that matter. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe switching gears a little bit. We we touched on it a little bit earlier, but you you've been very prolific as a researcher and certainly published a lot. And and we both know that's just what's published. There's a lot of stuff that you you look at, you learn from, but never actually makes it to a journal. But I'm sure there are also scenarios where you've looked to the research that's come out as you try to apply it. And you're day-to-day practice. And there are things that you see that's, it's just inferior quality research. It's mm-hmm. large inferences from small sample sizes or just poor study designs. Are, are there big issues that you think, you know, that the people in our world, right? The, the boots on the ground, training athletes really need to be mindful as we try to take stuff from, you know, the, the literature to try to help our athletes. Are there, are there big gaps in the research? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a great question. It's tough, right? Because, you know, you and I have the, you know, we're blessed to be working with the top 5%, right? And, you know, that the, there's not much research that goes into that percentile. Um, so for people like ourselves, it, it, you're making insinuations or a leap of faith that a, a sample population from whatever it may be is, ex, you can extrapolate it to the physiology of a, of a and the psychology of a world-class athlete and the training exposure and the insult that we're placing on the body. Is, is it? is it um, comparable? You know what I mean? So I think that's just an underlying kind of general rule that, you know, what, what is the, the, just the body of awareness in truly elites is, is probably not that great. I think there's a lot more coming out of the Olympic sports mm-hmm. um, because the Olympic sports just have the liberty of four years. Um, so in that first year of a quad where it's a long way away, you can really start to look at, you know, some, some high powered, um, yeah. sports science in, in truly elites, but in like yourself, where you're going week to week and multiple games in a week or, you know, camps that just come and go so fast. Um, we're not really getting that type of insights, but you know, whether it's supplement claims, um, whether it's kind of the recovery space is a big narrative at the moment. I, I truly believe the recovery kind of conversation has to be handled correctly um, again, you, you, it, it's not about the pendulum just saying, well, do less. Um, you know, we, we have to understand the parameters of why you're trying to recover because the body of work has been done prior to it. Um, mm-hmm. 
But workload ratios are kind of controversial at the minute. I think in principle, it's a great philosophy, but there's been a lot of debate and interrogation of the algorithms and the statistics behind some of those workload ratios and whether they're truly influential or not. Um, Like I say, I think it's a great concept. I think you've just got to take it with caution. You can't put all your eggs in that basket and say, well, this number is saying that athlete X, Y, or Z has to stop um, and and be pulled away. particularly spoke to a bunch of guys in the NBA where, you know, workload management or people being pulled on a workload related uh, factor is, is becoming a bit, pan, a bit of a, an epidemic in the NBA right now. And, uh, you know, a lot of the coaches are very frustrated by it. Whereas the player players association is obviously trying to protect and support its personnel. And um, it's an interesting narrative is workload at the minute as well. It's a, it's a big discussion in baseball. You're, you know, you're 162 games, maybe two days off per month. And, yeah. um, it's hard, you know, particularly with the number of, you know, cross country flights and things like that that take place, time zone changes. It's a, it's a big difference maker. Um, and yeah. something we, we obviously as an industry need to get better at, not just like understanding, but actually documenting like what, what belongs in the equation that's, that's using to yeah. be used to drive those decisions. Um, yeah. maybe a, another shift gears, but you, you work with athletes all across the training lifespan. Obviously you, you know, you see, you know, professionals now, people are doing this for a living, but I know over the years you've, you've interacted with teenagers who are, you know, kind of upstart athletes. Um, you know, are there certain key checkpoints that you think, you know, if a 16 year old kid is listening to this and, and they want to get to a higher level of athletics, what, what's on your developmental timeline, you know, and where do things go wrong? Where do they, where do they go right in this process? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't really work apart from my son who's six years old. I'm the head coach of his U6 soccer team, which nice. is probably the most stressful coaching job I've ever had in my life. You know, like herding cats. <laughs> right. Totally. It's, it's, it's wild. Um, you know, I don't really work with, you know, younger age groups, you know, this, this, anymore. Um, but, but yeah, definitely, you know, long-term development and looking at, you know, key markers in that process. I think what I would say is, you know, fundamentals last forever. You know, I mean, even even at the highest level, um, you have to establish good fundamental practices and you have to find out routines and, and, and processes that should become, you know, career career long. How, you know, if you're a, a 15, 16 year old, look at, you know, how you can develop good morning routines, how can you know, mobility, um, you know, how can you get into good sleep patterns and then, you know, upon waking mobility and, you know, any type of meditation or, or mind kind of focusing and being present and grounded through to breath work and, and then the nutrition piece, you know, th- these are all fundamental things that make sense to a, you know, 15 year veteran as well as someone that's just, uh, you know, 16 to 18 year old trying to really establish themselves in high school and get into the college ranks. Right. So the best, the best athletes in the world are the ones where, life is pretty mundane and it's pretty dull because it yeah. looks the same. It always looks the same. Um, and you and I would look at it and go, holy cow, how do you do that every single day? But there is this dedication to the process. Um, yeah. I think that's that's kind of the message I would give to that question. Fundamentals last forever. I'm completely stealing that. Oh, that's good. Um, all right. So I, we're, we're not going to get uh, time crunch here, but I got two more for you. Yeah. And they, they kind of piggyback on each other. What's been your biggest growth area over the past year? Like what, what's, what's changed? What have you adjusted in your, in your approach, you know, with, with athletes or anything? Yeah. Yeah. No, I I mean, I think um, for me, my role right now, you know, there's, there's been a lot of leadership development. Um, You know, I, 
I coach athletes, but I coach coaches more so now. Um, And I think that my my development, ongoing development right now, because of the position that I'm in, is more about looking at the integration of things and how things work together. It's not this kind of linear tunnel of strength and power development or speed development or whatever it may be in the strength and conditioning space. It's understanding how can I take a step back, remove my professional bias to that domain and that area and say, what's the value of this dietitian, and when 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 do we need okay. to bring them on board? And this psychologist is saying something, which is a strength coach. I can't dismiss because it's actually going to help me down the down mm-hmm. the the lane. And I think that's kind of where I continue to grow is just looking at models of holistic optimization, mm-hmm. not just looking at well, how do I optimize from the physical preparation side of things, but mm-hmm. looking at all the constituent pieces that can influence the outcome. That, that's kind of really mm-hmm. where I continue to grow and develop. And that's, that's challenging for, for two reasons. One, which, which I actually love, like you have to seek out opportunities to be the dumbest guy in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, that's, that's super important. But the other thing that, that's tricky about it is you're ultimately expanding the team and, and you know, that like team dynamics, the success is always in the synergy. So you're not just evaluating their competency. They're evaluating their, their fit. How yeah. well do they work with the other members of the team, their athletes? And it's very easy just to be like, all right, we're going to add 50 people to the team for this one athlete. But before you know it, you can get a lot of, you know, people riding, you know, 10 horses with one saddle, you know? Yeah. You've got to, you, you know, you've got to get people that want to embrace the the philosophy of, inter, you know, not multidisciplinary services, but interdisciplinary service yeah, yeah. structures and, and how these things come together. Um, you know, so that, that, that's huge. Nice. So building on that, I know you're, you're a very progressive guy. Um, always have been, and you're looking for ways to get better. What What's the stuff that you think about at 3 a.m. as you stare off into blackness? What gets you excited to learn more? What would you want to study um, to help you in your, your day-to-day? Yeah, shoot. I mean, well, the, 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 there's a lot. I mean, like, like I said, I've touched on it already. Like, I, I'm really fascinated by, um, you know, the, the, this training being functional. I And I don't mean functional in terms of, like, movement mm-hmm. patterns. I mean – the return on investment of your training, how efficient is your training and the return on that training exposure and that insult? Because, you know, the non-functional overreaching and the and the moving into the domain of, you know, sympathetic overtraining is something we, I think, we're really exposed to here in this community. And it's usually pulling the horses back. Like these, again, this, this fight or flight warrior mentality is regardless of how I feel, I'm going to run through this brick wall because yeah. I'm a fighter. Um, that's not the same for all sports. I know, you know, and, and, and some, some are different, but certainly in the world I'm living in right now, it's like, okay, how do we, how do we manage that desire to, to fight, to continue to go, to redline, you know, the session and make sure that I win the session because it's a fight. Um, so I'm, I'm really intrigued on kind of minimal, minimal dose effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what is the, you know, it's like the Goldilocks effect. You know, what's the seat? You know, what's the yes. too much or too little? Oh, that's just right. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's a really unique kind of paradigm, which I think we're faced with on a day to day basis here. Um, and I call it, you know, training ROI, like, like yeah. how are we maximizing our ROI, minimizing the exposure for maximum returns? It's a bit of a different trippy mindset for a strength coach who wants to, you know, own the process. And, and, yeah. and we're all about like more training and more dedication to the, you know, the, there is a Goldilocks effect to that. And that's kind of what I'm interested in right now. I think that's awesome. Really, really good stuff. Um, hey, I know this is uh, this has gone long and I appreciate oh, you taking no, the time. Uh, folks can find you on Instagram. It's at uh, dr underscore Duncan underscore French. Um, 
Hey, man, I appreciate you taking the time. It was good to catch up and hear what you're up to. I, I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners did too. For sure, man. Good to, good to reconnect and congrats on everything you've got going on as well. It's, uh, it's really good to see from afar. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Hopefully we meet up in person here soon. All right, buddy. Yeah.